Hello and welcome to our podcast on the exciting world of cryptocurrencies. Today, we'll be discussing a PDF file that provides a concise introduction to Bitcoin and blockchain technology. This file is a great resource for anyone who wants to learn more about digital currencies and how they are changing the way we think about money. So, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a digital currency that was created in 2008 by an unknown person or group using the name Satoshi Nakamoto. It is a decentralized currency, which means that it is not controlled by any government or financial institution. Instead, it is based on a technology called blockchain, which is a distributed ledger that records all transactions in a secure and transparent way. One of the main advantages of Bitcoin is that it allows for fast and cheap transactions without the need for intermediaries like banks or credit card companies. This makes it ideal for people who want to send money across borders or make purchases online without having to worry about high fees or long processing times. However, Bitcoin also has some disadvantages. For example, it is still a relatively new technology and there are concerns about its security and stability. There have been several high-profile hacks and scams involving Bitcoin, which have led some people to question its long-term viability. Despite these challenges, many people believe that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have the potential to revolutionize the way we think about money and finance. They offer a new way of conducting transactions that is faster, cheaper, and more secure than traditional methods. So, what does the PDF file we're discussing today have to say about all of this? Well, it provides a short introduction to the world of cryptocurrencies, with a focus on Bitcoin and its underlying technology. It explains how Bitcoin works, what its advantages and disadvantages are, and how it compares to traditional forms of currency. The authors of the PDF file, Alexander Berenson and Fabian Schaar, are both experts in the field of economics and finance. They provide a clear and concise overview of the key concepts and ideas behind Bitcoin and blockchain technology, making it easy for anyone to understand. Overall, this PDF file is a great resource for anyone who wants to learn more about cryptocurrencies and how they are changing the world of finance. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just curious about this new technology, you're sure to find something of interest in this informative and engaging document. So. Be sure to check it out and join us next time for more insights into the world of cryptocurrencies. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast on the world of cryptocurrencies. We hope you found our discussion of the PDF file informative and helpful. As we've seen, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are a fascinating and rapidly evolving field, with the potential to transform the way we think about money and finance. Whether you're an investor, a business owner, or just someone who's curious about this new technology, there's never been a better time to learn more about cryptocurrencies and how they work. So, be sure to check out the PDF file we discussed today and stay tuned for more insights and updates on the world of cryptocurrencies. Thanks.
Hello and welcome to this podcast episode on credit cycles and business cycles. Today, we will be discussing the fascinating relationship between credit and output time series and how they relate to the overall business cycle. First, let's define what we mean by the business cycle. The business cycle refers to the fluctuations in economic activity that occur over time, including periods of expansion and contraction. These cycles can be influenced by a variety of factors, including changes in consumer spending, government policies, and technological advancements. One important factor that can contribute to the business cycle is credit. Credit refers to the ability of individuals and businesses to borrow money, which can be used to finance investments and other activities. When credit is readily available, it can stimulate economic growth by allowing businesses to expand and consumers to spend more money. However, when credit becomes scarce, it can lead to a contraction in economic activity. So, how do credit and output time series play a role in the business cycle? Output time series refer to the fluctuations in economic output over time, including changes in gross domestic product, GDP, and other measures of economic activity. These fluctuations can be influenced by changes in credit availability as well as other factors such as changes in consumer and business confidence. In the PDF we are discussing today, the author explores the relationship between credit and output time series in more detail. Specifically, the author examines how self-fulfilling belief shocks can generate procyclical responses of unsecured credit with potentially sluggish adjustment dynamics. This means that changes in people's confidence in future credit conditions can lead to fluctuations in economic output that are similar to the data we observe in the real world. The author also explores the impact of different types of credit on the economy. For example, the author examines the differences between secured and unsecured firm credit and how these types of credit can have different impacts on economic growth. Secured credit, which is backed by collateral, can be less risky for lenders and may be more readily available during times of economic uncertainty. Unsecured credit, on the other hand, may be more difficult to obtain during times of economic stress. Overall, the PDF we are discussing today provides a fascinating look at the relationship between credit and the business cycle. By examining the impact of different types of credit on economic growth, as well as the role of self-fulfilling belief shocks, the author sheds light on some of the key factors that contribute to fluctuations in economic activity over time. In conclusion, Understanding the relationship between credit and the business cycle is crucial for policymakers, economists, and anyone interested in the health of the economy. By examining the factors that contribute to economic growth and contraction, we can better understand how to promote long-term economic stability and prosperity. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode on credit cycles and business cycles. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing the founding of the Federal Reserve System and its impact on the liquidity of the U.S. banking system.
Before the establishment of the Fed, the U.S. banking system was plagued by frequent banking crises. These crises were caused by a variety of factors, including inadequate regulation, a lack of lender of last resort facilities, and an inelastic currency. Banks were unable to meet the demand for cash during times of financial stress, leading to bank runs and failures. In response to these challenges, the Fed was established in 1913 with the goal of providing an elastic currency and acting as a lender of last resort to banks in times of financial stress. The Fed was given the power to issue currency, set interest rates, and regulate banks. One of the key ways in which the Fed has impacted the U.S. banking system is by providing liquidity to banks during times of financial stress. The Fed's discount window lending has helped to stabilize the banking system by providing banks with access to cash when they need it most. The Fed has also played a role in regulating the U.S. banking system. The Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 introduced significant changes to U.S. bank regulation, including the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Volcker Rule, which restricts banks from engaging in certain types of speculative trading. Despite its successes, the Fed has faced criticism over the years. Some argue that the Fed's policies have contributed to economic inequality, while others argue that the Fed has too much power and is not sufficiently accountable to the public. Overall, the founding of the Federal Reserve System was a significant moment in U.S. financial history. The Fed has played a crucial role in stabilizing the U.S. banking system and providing liquidity to banks during times of financial stress. While the Fed has faced criticism over the years, it remains an important institution in the U.S. financial system. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. We hope you found it informative and engaging. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. We hope you found it informative and engaging. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. In conclusion, the establishment of the Federal Reserve System greatly altered the operating environment for U.S. banks. The Fed was designed to hold the reserves of its member banks, supply currency and reserves to meet recurring and extraordinary demands, and provide check clearing and other payment services. The Fed has played a crucial role in stabilizing the U.S. banking system and providing liquidity to banks during times of financial stress. While the Fed has faced criticism over the years, it remains an important institution in the U.S. financial system. Thank you again for listening, and we look Hello and welcome to our podcast on the aggregate implications of size-dependent distortions. In this episode, we will be discussing the impact of regulations on young businesses and their ability to expand. First, let's define what we mean by size-dependent distortions. These are regulations that create implicit marginal taxes for small businesses, making it more costly for them to expand and grow. For example, 
labor laws in France require firms with 50 employees or more to comply with certain regulations that do not apply to smaller firms. This creates a threshold effect, where firms are incentivized to stay below the threshold or substitute some of their full-time workers with part-time workers. These distortions can have a significant impact on the growth of small businesses and the overall productivity of the economy. In the United States, new firms created 2.9 million jobs per year on average over the period 1,980-2010. However, many of these firms fail after a short period of time or do not grow. Regulations that alter the incentives to expand explain the large number of small community banks in the United States. The common wisdom, as reflected in numerous reports by Blue Ribbon Panels, is that these regulations significantly impede the growth of small firms and should be suppressed or smoothed out. However, there is little work formally modeling these policies to understand and evaluate their effects. This is where the research in this PDF comes in. The author proposes a simple model and gives a quantitative evaluation of the impact of size-dependent distortions on the economy. The model fits the size distribution discontinuity around the threshold well, and shows that removing the regulation leads to an increase of output close to 0.3%, holding employment fixed. However, the results also suggest that size distortions have a fairly moderate aggregate impact. The gains from extending the threshold from 50 to 75 employees are reduced to 0.6%. The motivation for the phase-in of the regulation at 50 employees is that it is too costly to impose the compliance cost on small firms. Applying the regulation to all firms would reduce output by 2.5%, which suggests that the phase-in is perhaps not such a bad policy. Overall, the research in this PDF highlights the importance of understanding the impact of regulations on small businesses and the economy as a whole. While regulations are necessary to ensure fair competition and protect workers, they can also create unintended consequences that hinder growth and productivity. Policymakers should carefully consider the costs and benefits of regulations and strive to create a regulatory environment that supports the growth of small businesses while also protecting workers and consumers. In conclusion, the research in this PDF provides valuable insights into the impact of size-dependent distortions on the economy. By modeling the effects of regulations on small businesses, the author shows that these distortions can have a significant impact on the growth and productivity of the economy. Policymakers should take these findings into account when designing regulations and strive to create a regulatory environment that supports the growth of small businesses while also protecting workers and consumers. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the aggregate implications of size dependent. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode about Alan Meltzer and his search for a nominal anchor in U.S. monetary policy. Alan Meltzer was a renowned economist who made significant contributions to the field of monetary economics. In this episode, 
we will explore his ideas and their relevance to current debates about central banking. To begin with, let's define what we mean by a nominal anchor. A nominal anchor is a policy tool that central banks use to guide expectations about future inflation. It is a way of communicating to the public that the central bank is committed to keeping inflation low and stable. In the U.S., the Federal Reserve has used various nominal anchors over the years, including money supply targets, interest rate targets, and more recently, inflation targets. Alan Meltzer was interested in the search for a nominal anchor because he believed that it was essential for maintaining price stability and avoiding the kind of inflationary episodes that the U.S. experienced in the 1970s and early 1980s. Meltzer argued that the Federal Reserve needed a clear and consistent framework for monetary policy that would guide its decision-making and communicate its intentions to the public. Meltzer's ideas were shaped by his experiences as a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee, a group of economists who met regularly to discuss monetary policy and provide independent analysis and advice to the Federal Reserve. Meltzer was also a prolific writer and published numerous papers and books on monetary economics, including a two-volume history of the Federal Reserve. One of Meltzer's key contributions to the field of monetary economics was his emphasis on the importance of rules-based monetary policy. Meltzer believed that central banks should follow clear and transparent rules for setting interest rates and other policy instruments, rather than relying on discretionary judgment. He argued that rules-based policy would help to anchor expectations and reduce uncertainty, which in turn would promote economic stability and growth. Another important contribution that Meltzer made was his analysis of the causes of inflation. Meltzer argued that inflation was primarily a monetary phenomenon caused by excessive growth in the money supply. He also emphasized the role of expectations in shaping inflation outcomes, arguing that if the public expected inflation to rise, it would be more likely to do so. Meltzer's ideas about the search for a nominal anchor and the importance of rules-based policy have been influential in shaping current debates about central banking. Many economists and policymakers now advocate for inflation targeting as a way of providing a clear nominal anchor for monetary policy. Inflation targeting involves setting a specific target for inflation, typically around 2%, and using policy tools such as interest rates to achieve that target. However, there are also debates about the limitations of inflation targeting and the need to go beyond it. Some economists argue that central banks should also consider other factors, such as financial stability and employment, when setting policy. Others argue that central banks should adopt more flexible frameworks that allow for greater discretion in response to changing economic conditions. In conclusion, Alan Meltzer's ideas about the search for a nominal anchor and the importance of rules-based policy have had a significant impact on the field of monetary economics. His work has helped to shape current debates about central banking and the role of inflation targeting in promoting economic stability and growth. As we continue to grapple with the challenges of monetary policy in an uncertain and rapidly changing world,
Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast, where we will be discussing blockchain technology. Blockchain is a term that has been thrown around a lot in recent years, but what exactly is it and how does it work? At its core, blockchain is a digital ledger that records transactions in a secure and transparent way. Each block in the chain contains a record of several transactions, and once a block is added to the chain, it cannot be altered or deleted. This makes blockchain an incredibly secure and reliable way to store and transfer data. One of the most well-known applications of blockchain is in the world of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin, the first and most famous cryptocurrency, uses blockchain technology to record transactions and ensure the security of the network. But blockchain has many other potential applications beyond just cryptocurrency. For example, blockchain could be used to create secure and transparent supply chains. By recording every step of a product's journey from raw materials to finished product, companies could ensure that their products are ethically sourced and produced. Blockchain could also be used to create secure voting systems, where every vote is recorded on the blockchain and cannot be altered or deleted. But despite its potential, blockchain is not a perfect solution for every problem. One of the biggest challenges facing blockchain is scalability. As the number of transactions on a blockchain grows, the system can become slower and less efficient. This is because every node on the network must process every transaction, which can lead to bottlenecks and delays. Another challenge facing blockchain is regulation. Because blockchain is a decentralized system, it can be difficult to regulate and control. This has led to concerns about the use of blockchain for illegal activities such as money laundering and terrorism financing. Despite these challenges, blockchain technology has the potential to revolutionize many industries and change the way we think about data and security. As with any new technology, there are still many questions and uncertainties surrounding blockchain but it is clear that it is here to stay. So that's it for this episode of our podcast. We hope you learned something new about blockchain technology and its potential applications. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us on social media. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of our podcast. We hope you enjoyed learning about blockchain technology and its potential applications. As always, we encourage you to do your own research and stay informed about new developments in the world of technology. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or topics you would like us to cover, please let us know. You can find us on social media or send us an email. Until next time, stay curious. Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the topic of inflation control and the debate surrounding it. Inflation is a term that we often hear in the news, but what does it actually mean? In simple terms, inflation refers to the rate at which the general level of prices for goods and services is rising, 
and subsequently, the purchasing power of currency is falling. Central banks around the world are tasked with the responsibility of controlling inflation, and they use a variety of tools to achieve this goal. However, there is a growing debate among economists about the effectiveness of these tools and the assumptions that underlie them. One of the key assumptions that conventional macroeconomic models make about inflation control is that there is a trade-off between a inflation and unemployment. This is known as the Phillips curve, which suggests that as unemployment falls, inflation rises and vice versa. Therefore, central banks often use monetary policy tools, such as adjusting interest rates, to balance these two factors. However, in a recent article published in the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review, economist Stephen Williamson challenges this conventional wisdom and argues that the Phillips curve may not be as reliable as previously thought. Williamson explores the properties of two standard macroeconomic monetary models and shows how they exhibit neo-fisherian properties. The neo-fisherian approach to inflation control suggests that raising interest rates can actually lead to lower inflation, rather than the other way around. This is because higher interest rates can lead to a stronger currency, which in turn can reduce the price of imported goods and services. Additionally, higher interest rates can lead to lower demand for credit, which can reduce the amount of money in circulation and ultimately lead to lower inflation. Williamson's analysis challenges some of the assumptions that underlie conventional macroeconomic models and suggests that central banks may need to rethink their approach to inflation control. However, this is a complex issue with no easy answers. In conclusion, inflation control is a critical issue that affects us all, and it's important to understand the debate surrounding it. While conventional macroeconomic models suggest that there is a trade-off between inflation and unemployment, Williamson's analysis challenges this assumption and suggests that raising interest rates can actually lead to lower inflation. As always, we encourage our listeners to stay informed and engaged with these important economic issues. Thank you for tuning into this episode of our podcast, and we look forward to exploring more topics with you in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast on inflation control. We hope that you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. As always, we encourage our listeners to continue learning about these important economic issues and to stay engaged with the ongoing debate. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please feel free to reach out to us on social media or via email. We always appreciate feedback from our listeners and are happy to continue the conversation. Until next time, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to exploring more topics. Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast, where we will be discussing the fascinating world of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a digital currency that has been making headlines in recent years due to its unique characteristics and potential as an investment opportunity. In this episode, we will be exploring the basics of Bitcoin, including how it works, its potential benefits and drawbacks, 
and how it compares to other cryptocurrencies on the market. So, what exactly is Bitcoin? At its core, Bitcoin is a decentralized digital currency that operates on a peer-to-peer -peer network. This means that there is no central authority controlling the currency, and transactions are verified and recorded by a network of users rather than a central bank. This is made possible through the use of blockchain technology, which is essentially a digital ledger that records all Bitcoin transactions in a secure and transparent manner. One of the key benefits of Bitcoin is its potential to provide a more secure and efficient means of conducting transactions. Because Bitcoin transactions are verified and recorded on a decentralized network, there is no need for intermediaries such as banks or payment processors. This can lead to faster and cheaper transactions, as well as greater privacy and security for users. However, there are also potential drawbacks to investing in Bitcoin. One of the biggest concerns is the volatility of the currency, which can fluctuate wildly in value over short periods of time. This can make it difficult to predict the value of Bitcoin and can lead to significant losses for investors. Additionally, there are concerns about the potential for fraud and hacking as well as the lack of regulation and oversight in the Bitcoin market. Despite these concerns, many investors see Bitcoin as a potentially lucrative investment opportunity. In recent years, the value of Bitcoin has skyrocketed, with some investors seeing returns of over 1,000% in just a few years. However, it is important to approach Bitcoin investment with caution and to do your research before investing. Finally, it is worth noting that Bitcoin is just one of many cryptocurrencies on the market. While Bitcoin is currently the most well-known and widely used cryptocurrency, there are many other options available to investors. Some of these, such as Ethereum and Litecoin, offer unique features and potential benefits that may be worth exploring. In conclusion, Bitcoin is a fascinating and complex digital currency that has the potential to revolutionize the way we conduct transactions. While there are certainly risks and drawbacks to investing in Bitcoin, many investors see it as a potentially lucrative opportunity. As with any investment, it is important to approach Bitcoin with caution and to do your research before investing. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast on Bitcoin. We hope that you have found this discussion informative and helpful in understanding the basics of Bitcoin and its potential as an investment opportunity. As always, it is important to approach any investment with caution and to do your own research before making any decisions. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to... Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today we will be discussing monetary policy, regimes and the real interest rate. This is a topic that affects all of us, whether we realize it or not. Monetary policy is the process by which a central bank manages the supply and demand of money in an economy to achieve specific goals, such as controlling inflation or promoting economic growth. In this PDF, 
William T. Gavin explores the relationship between monetary policy and the low real interest rate on safe assets since the 2007-8 financial crisis. He examines four distinct monetary policy regimes that the Federal Reserve has operated since 1965, each with its own set of goals and operating procedures. The first regime, from 1965 to 1979, was characterized by a focus on controlling inflation through the use of monetary aggregates. The second regime, from 1979 to 2000, saw a shift towards targeting interest rates as a means of controlling inflation. The third regime, from 2000 to 2008, was marked by a focus on maintaining price stability and promoting economic growth through the use of forward guidance and unconventional monetary policy tools. Finally, the fourth regime, from 2008 to 2015, was characterized by a zero-interest-rate policy, ZERP, in response to the financial crisis. Gavin argues that these different monetary policy regimes have had a significant impact on the real interest rate, which is the nominal interest rate adjusted for inflation. He notes that the low real interest rate on safe assets, since the financial crisis is due in part to demographic factors, such as an aging population and increased demand for safe assets. However, he also suggests that monetary policy has played a role in keeping real interest rates low. One of the key takeaways from this PDF is that monetary policy can have a significant impact on the economy, both in the short term and the long term. By adjusting interest rates and other monetary policy tools, central banks can influence inflation, economic growth, and the real interest rate. However, as we have seen in recent years, unconventional monetary policy tools such as ZERP and quantitative easing can have unintended consequences and may not be as effective as traditional monetary policy tools. Overall, this PDF provides a fascinating look at the history of monetary policy in the United States and its impact on the real interest rate. It is a must-read for anyone interested in economics, finance, or public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast and learned something new about monetary policy regimes and the real interest rate. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to our podcast on the impact of policy on financial intermediation. Today, we'll be discussing a fascinating article by Martin Burka and Christian Zimmerman, which explores how central banks can influence the availability of credit through the business cycle. To begin, let's define what we mean by financial intermediation. Essentially, this refers to the process by which financial institutions such as banks facilitate the flow of funds between savers and borrowers. Banks take in deposits from savers and use these funds to make loans to borrowers, who then use the money to invest in their businesses or make purchases. This process is crucial for economic growth, as it allows businesses to access the capital they need to expand and create jobs. However, financial intermediation is not always smooth. 
During economic downturns, banks may become more cautious about lending, which can exacerbate the downturn by limiting the availability of credit. This is where central banks come in. Central banks have a variety of tools at their disposal to influence the availability of credit, such as adjusting interest rates or implementing regulatory policies. Berka and Zimmerman's article takes a closer look at how these tools can impact financial intermediation. They develop a model that takes into account the funding of banks and how it interacts with monetary and regulatory policy tools. The authors find that an active monetary policy can increase loan volume, even in a trough economy. This is because lower interest rates make it cheaper for banks to borrow funds, which in turn allows them to make more loans to borrowers. However, the authors also note that there are limits to the effectiveness of monetary policy. For example, if banks are already heavily indebted, they may be less willing to take on additional loans even if interest rates are low. Additionally, regulatory policies can also impact the availability of credit. For example, regulations that limit or prevent banks from investing equity in their borrowers' businesses can limit the amount of credit available. Overall, Berka and Zimmerman's article highlights the complex interplay between monetary and regulatory policies and the funding of banks. It underscores the importance of taking a holistic approach to financial intermediation, rather than relying solely on one policy tool. By understanding how these policies interact, policymakers can better support the flow of credit and promote economic growth. In conclusion, financial intermediation is a crucial process for economic growth, but it is not always smooth. Central banks have a variety of tools at their disposal to influence the availability of credit, but these tools must be used in a holistic manner that takes into account the funding of banks and the complex interplay between monetary and regulatory policies. Berka and Zimmermann's article provides valuable insights into how these policies can impact financial intermediation and highlights the need for a comprehensive approach to promoting economic growth. We hope you found this podcast informative. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing the case for central bank electronic money and the non-case for central bank cryptocurrencies. Firstly, let's start with some background information. In today's world, we have various forms of money such as cash, electronic money, and cryptocurrencies. Cash is the most traditional form of money, while electronic money is a digital representation of cash that is stored in bank accounts. Cryptocurrencies, on the other hand, are digital assets that use cryptography to secure transactions and control the creation of new units. Now, let's dive into the PDF file that we will be discussing in this episode. The PDF file is written by Alexander Berenson and Fabian Escher, who are both experts in the field of cryptocurrencies and monetary economics. In this file, they argue that there is a strong case for central bank electronic money, and that central bank cryptocurrencies are not necessary. So, 
what is central bank electronic money. It is a digital representation of cash that is issued by a central bank. This means that households and firms can open accounts with the central bank and use electronic money instead of commercial bank deposits. The main benefit of central bank electronic money is that it satisfies the population's need for virtual money without facing counterparty risk. Counterparty risk is the risk that one party in a financial transaction will default on their obligations, leaving the other party with losses. In the case of commercial bank deposits, there is counterparty risk because the bank could become insolvent and unable to repay its depositors. However, with central bank electronic money, there is no counterparty risk because the central bank is the ultimate issuer of the money. Now, let's move on to central bank cryptocurrencies. Berenson and Shar argue that central bank cryptocurrencies are not necessary because they do not offer any significant advantages over central bank electronic money. In fact, they argue that central bank cryptocurrencies could be detrimental to the stability of the financial system. One of the main arguments against central bank cryptocurrencies is that they could lead to bank runs. A bank run is a situation where depositors withdraw their money from a bank because they fear that the bank will become insolvent. In the case of central bank cryptocurrencies, depositors could withdraw their money from commercial banks and hold it in the form of central bank cryptocurrencies. This could lead to a liquidity crisis for commercial banks and ultimately a financial crisis. Another argument against central bank cryptocurrencies is that they could be used for illegal activities such as money laundering and terrorism financing. Cryptocurrencies are often associated with anonymity, which makes them attractive to criminals. By issuing central bank cryptocurrencies, central banks could inadvertently facilitate illegal activities. In conclusion, Berenson and Eshar argue that central bank electronic money is a better alternative to central bank cryptocurrencies. Central bank electronic money offers the benefits of virtual money without facing counterparty risk, while central bank cryptocurrencies could be detrimental to the stability of the financial system. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode on the case for central bank electronic money and the non-case for central bank cryptocurrencies. We hope that you found this information informative and useful. If you have Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today we'll be discussing a topic that has been at the forefront of public discourse for quite some time now, executive compensation and agency theory. To begin with, let's define what we mean by executive compensation. This refers to the total amount of money and benefits that executives of a company receive for their services. This includes not just their base salary, but also bonuses, stock options, and other perks. Now, why is this topic so important? Well, for one, the compensation of top executives has been rising at an unprecedented rate over the past few decades, while the wages of the average worker have remained relatively stagnant. 
This has led to a significant increase in income inequality in the United States, which has become a major political and social issue. So, what is agency theory, and how does it relate to executive compensation? At its core, agency theory is concerned with the relationship between principals, such as shareholders, and agents, such as executives, in a company. The theory suggests that there is a potential conflict of interest between these two groups, as agents may act in their own self-interest rather than in the best interests of the principals. This is where executive compensation comes in. The idea is that by offering executives a package of incentives that aligns with the goals of the company, the principals can motivate the agents to act in their best interests. For example, if a company's goal is to increase profits, executives may be offered bonuses based on the company's financial performance. However, there are some criticisms of this approach. One argument is that executives may be incentivized to focus on short-term gains rather than long-term growth, as this is what will lead to immediate financial rewards. Additionally, there is concern that executives may manipulate financial data in order to meet performance targets and receive bonuses, which could be detrimental to the company in the long run. So, what does the research say about all of this? Well, there is no easy answer. The PDF we're discussing today, authored by George Levi Gale, Chen Li, and Robert A. Miller, explores the various factors that contribute to executive compensation and income inequality in the United States. The authors argue that the traditional measures of executive compensation used in most studies are flawed, as they do not take into account the full range of benefits that executives receive. They propose a new measure of compensation that includes not just salary and bonuses, but also stock options, pensions, and other benefits. Using this new measure, the authors find that executive compensation has increased at a much faster rate than previously thought, and that this increase has contributed significantly to income inequality in the United States. However, the authors also acknowledge that there are many factors that contribute to income inequality, and that executive compensation is just one piece of the puzzle. They suggest that policymakers should consider a range of solutions, including tax reform, education, and training programs and stronger labor protections, in order to address this complex issue. In conclusion, executive compensation and agency theory are complex topics that have significant implications for our economy and society as a whole. While there is no easy solution to the problem of income inequality, it is important that we continue to have open and honest discussions about these issues and that we work together to find solutions that are fair and equitable for all. Thank you for listening to today's episode of our podcast. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the topic of income disparities between fast-growing economies and development laggards. This is a complex issue that has been the subject of much research and debate in recent years. At its core, the issue of income disparities is about the gap between rich and poor countries. 
While some countries have experienced rapid economic growth and development, others have struggled to keep up. This has led to a widening gap between the haves and have-nots, with some countries becoming increasingly wealthy while others remain mired in poverty. One of the key factors that contributes to this disparity is institutional barriers. These are the rules, regulations, and policies that govern economic activity in a given country. In some cases, these barriers can be so high that they prevent businesses from operating effectively, stifling innovation and growth. This is particularly true in developing countries, where weak institutions can make it difficult for businesses to access credit, hire workers, or navigate complex legal systems. To illustrate this point, let's take a look at some examples. In many African countries, for instance, corruption is a major problem. This can make it difficult for businesses to operate, as they may be forced to pay bribes or navigate complex regulatory systems. Similarly, in some Asian countries, there may be cultural barriers that prevent women or minorities from participating fully in the economy. This can limit the pool of talent available to businesses, making it harder for them to innovate and grow. Despite these challenges, there are some countries that have managed to overcome institutional barriers and achieve rapid economic growth. These countries are often referred to as fast-growing economies, and they include countries like China, India, and South Korea. These countries have been able to achieve rapid growth by investing in education, infrastructure, and technology, and by creating a business-friendly environment that encourages innovation and entrepreneurship. Unfortunately, not all countries have been able to achieve this level of success. In many cases, developing countries are trapped in a cycle of poverty that is difficult to break. These countries may lack the resources or the political will to invest in education, infrastructure, or technology, and they may be hampered by weak institutions that make it difficult for businesses to operate effectively. So what can be done to address these disparities? There are no easy answers. But many experts believe that investing in education, infrastructure, and technology is key. By providing people with the skills and resources they need to succeed, countries can create a more level playing field and reduce the gap between rich and poor. Additionally, it is important to address institutional barriers that prevent businesses from operating effectively. This can involve reforms to legal systems, regulatory frameworks, and anti-corruption measures, among other things. Ultimately, addressing income disparities between fast-growing economies and development laggards is a complex and multifaceted issue. It requires a combination of investment in education, infrastructure, and technology, as well as reforms to institutional frameworks that govern economic activity. By working together to address these challenges, we can create a more equitable and prosperous world for all. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and we hope you found this discussion informative and thoughtful. Hello and welcome to our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the topic of intergenerational mobility and its relationship with parental education, time investment, 
and income. Intergenerational mobility refers to the ability of individuals to move up or down the social and economic ladder compared to their parents. This is an important concept because it reflects the degree of equality of opportunity in a society. In other words, if intergenerational mobility is high, it means that individuals have a fair chance to succeed regardless of their family background. On the other hand, if intergenerational mobility is low, it means that family background plays a significant role in determining one's life chances. One of the key factors that influence intergenerational mobility is parental education. Research has consistently shown that children of highly educated parents are more likely to attain higher levels of education themselves. This is because highly educated parents are more likely to provide a supportive home environment that fosters learning, as well as access to educational resources such as books, computers, and extracurricular activities. Additionally, highly educated parents are more likely to have higher incomes, which can provide financial support for their children's education. Another important factor that influences intergenerational mobility is parental time investment. This refers to the amount of time that parents spend with their children, engaging in activities such as reading, playing, and helping with homework. Research has shown that parental time investment is positively associated with children's educational outcomes, even after controlling for parental education and income. This is because parental time investment provides children with emotional support, encouragement, and guidance, which can help them develop the skills and motivation needed to succeed in school. Finally, parental income is also an important factor that influences intergenerational mobility. Children from low-income families are more likely to experience economic hardship, which can negatively impact their educational outcomes. For example, low-income families may not be able to afford high-quality childcare, educational resources, or extracurricular activities. Additionally, low-income families may experience stress and instability, which can affect children's emotional well-being and academic performance. Overall, intergenerational mobility is an important concept that reflects the degree of equality of opportunity in a society. Parental education, time investment, and income are all important factors that influence intergenerational mobility. By understanding these factors, we can work towards creating a more equitable society where all individuals have a fair chance to succeed, regardless of their family background. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. If you would like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to read the PDF file titled Intergenerational Mobility and the Effects of Parental Education, Time Investment and Income on Children's Educational Attainment by George Levi Gale, Limor Golan, and Mehmet A. Soitis. This PDF file provides a detailed analysis of the causal effects of parental education, time investment, and income on children's educational outcomes using a variety of statistical methods. Thank you again for tuning
Hello and welcome to our podcast on top earners and income inequality across countries. Today, we will be discussing the patterns of top income inequality and the role of wage and salary income in shaping these patterns. Income inequality has been a topic of discussion for many years and it has become increasingly important in recent times. The gap between the rich and the poor has widened in many countries, and this has led to a lot of debate about the causes and consequences of income inequality. In this podcast, we will be exploring the findings of a recent study on top earners and income inequality across countries. The study was conducted by Alejandro Badel, Moira Daly, Mark Huggett, and Martin Nybaum, and it was published in the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review in the third quarter of 2018. The study documents the evolution of the earnings distribution over the working lifetime, with a focus on properties of the upper tail of the distribution. The authors use data from the United States, Canada, Denmark, and Sweden to examine the common life cycle earnings statistics across these countries. One of the key findings of the study is that there are important differences in the magnitudes of these facts across countries. The patterns that the authors document provide empirical guidance for the specification and calibration of quantitative theoretical models aimed at understanding the distribution of earnings, income, and wealth within a given country. The study also highlights the challenges that existing models of earnings distributions face in generating extremely large earnings growth rates for top lifetime earners. The cross-country facts provide a new challenge for quantitative theoretical work directed at understanding the underlying sources of cross-country differences in inequality. The authors acknowledge financial support from Danish Social Science Research Council, FAA Grant No. 300,279, and support from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. They also thank Brian Noeth for research assistance. In conclusion, the study provides valuable insights into the patterns of top income inequality and the role of wage and salary income in shaping these patterns. The findings of the study have important implications for policymakers and researchers who are interested in understanding the causes and consequences of income inequality. Thank you for listening to our podcast on top earners and income inequality across countries. We hope you found it informative and thought-provoking. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you for listening to our podcast on top earners and income inequality across countries. We hope you found it informative and thought-provoking. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. It is important to continue the conversation on income inequality and to explore ways to address this issue. This can include policies that promote greater access to education and training progressive taxation, and social safety nets. We encourage our listeners to stay informed and engaged on this topic and to advocate for policies that promote greater economic equality. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to continuing. Welcome to our podcast on comparing measures of potential output.
In this episode, we will be exploring the various ways in which potential output can be measured and the implications for stabilization policy. First, let's define what we mean by potential output. Potential output is the level of output that an economy can sustain over the long run without generating inflationary pressures. It is often used as a benchmark for policymakers to determine whether the economy is operating at full capacity or not. There are many different methods that have been proposed in the literature for measuring potential output. One common approach is to use statistical filters, such as the Hodrick Prescott filter, to extract a trend from the data. Another approach is to use structural models that incorporate information about the underlying determinants of output, such as labor force participation rates and productivity growth. However, evaluating these different methods is a difficult task. Unlike standard out-of-sample forecast experiments with observed data, potential output is latent, so there is no truth against which to compare different measures. Moreover, different measures of potential output can lead to different policy prescriptions, which can have important implications for the effectiveness of stabilization policy. For example, consider the Taylor Rule, which is a widely used framework for setting monetary policy. The Taylor Rule specifies that the central bank should adjust the short-term interest rate in response to deviations of inflation and output from their respective targets. However, the coefficients in the Taylor Rule are not the only free parameters. How one computes potential output can affect the prescribed interest rate even with fixed parameters and a fixed inflation target. To illustrate this point, figure 8 in the PDF shows the time series of the federal funds rate prescribed by the Taylor Rule using six different measures of potential output and the actual federal funds rate over the same period. Each of these series is computed using the full sample of data. As you can see, different measures of potential output can lead to very different policy prescriptions, which can have important implications for the effectiveness of stabilization policy. Another issue with measuring potential output is that policymakers may not have access to all of the information for the full sample of data at every point in time. This availability issue is important because some methods, such as the Hodrick-Prescott filter and the unobserved components model, use smoothers that use all of the data available to infer potential output. This means that data at the end of the sample could influence the estimate of potential output at earlier points in time. Because the policymaker would not have this period T data available, they would not be able to use these methods in real time. Instead, policymakers may need to rely on simpler methods that use only the data available at the time of the policy decision. In conclusion, measuring potential output is a difficult task that requires careful consideration of the available data and the underlying economic structure. Different measures of potential output can lead to different policy prescriptions, which can have important implications for the effectiveness of stabilization policy. Policymakers must carefully evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of different methods and consider the availability of data when choosing a measure of potential output. We hope that this podcast has provided you with a better understanding of the challenges involved in measuring potential output and the importance of this concept for macroeconomic policy.
Welcome to this episode of our podcast where we will be discussing the topic of domestic innovation and international technology diffusion as sources of comparative advantage. This is a fascinating topic that has significant implications for the global economy and the competitiveness of countries and industries. To begin with, let's define what we mean by comparative advantage. In simple terms, comparative advantage refers to the ability of a country or industry to produce a particular good or service at a lower opportunity cost than another country or industry. This means that a country or industry can produce a good or service more efficiently than another country or industry, and therefore has a competitive advantage in that area. So, what are the determinants of comparative advantage? Traditionally, the Ricardian model of trade has been used to explain patterns of international trade. This model suggests that countries should specialize in producing goods that they can produce at a lower opportunity cost than other countries. This specialization leads to gains from trade and increased efficiency in production. However, there are other factors that can influence comparative advantage, such as differences in factor endowments, for example labor, capital, natural resources, economies of scale, and technological differences. It is these technological differences that we will be focusing on in this episode. Technological differences can arise from two sources, domestic innovation and international technology diffusion. Domestic innovation refers to the ability of a country or industry to develop new technologies and products through research and development ramp.d activities. International technology diffusion refers to the ability of a country or industry to adopt and adapt existing technologies and products from other countries. Both domestic innovation and international technology diffusion can have significant impacts on productivity differences across countries and industries. Countries and industries that invest more resources in innovation can expand the technological frontier and grow. Similarly, Countries and industries that are able to adopt and adapt existing technologies from other countries can improve their productivity and competitiveness. In this PDF file, the authors explore the role of domestic innovation and international technology diffusion in determining productivity differences across countries and industries. They use a quantitative approach to analyze the effect that these two sources of productivity growth have on the growth of productivity at the country industry level. Their analysis shows that industries that invest more in RAMP tend to have higher levels of productivity and faster growth rates. Similarly, industries that are able to adopt and adapt existing technologies from other countries tend to have higher levels of productivity and faster growth rates. However, there are also significant differences in the ability of countries and industries to innovate and adopt new technologies. Some countries and industries are able to invest more in RAMP, AD, and have better institutions and policies that support innovation and technology adoption. These countries and industries tend to have higher levels of productivity and faster growth rates. On the other hand, lower-income countries and industries tend to benefit more from international technology diffusion, as they may not have the resources or capabilities to invest in RAMP, AD. However, the speed of convergence towards the technological frontier is larger for those countries and industries that are farther away from the frontier. <laughs> Overall, this PDF file provides valuable insights into the determinants of comparative advantage and the role of domestic innovation and international technology diffusion in productivity growth. It highlights the importance of investing in RAMP 
DD, and adopting new technologies for countries and industries to remain competitive in the global economy. As we continue to navigate the challenges and opportunities of the global economy, it is important to keep in mind the role of innovation and technology in driving productivity growth and competitiveness. By investing in these areas, countries and industries can continue to grow and thrive in the years to come. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the effects of credit supply on unemployment and income inequality. Today we will be discussing a recent research article published by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, which explores the impact of credit constraints on the labor market and income distribution. To begin, let's define what we mean by credit constraints. In simple terms, Credit constraints refer to the inability of individuals or firms to access credit or loans from financial institutions. This can occur for a variety of reasons, such as a lack of collateral, poor credit history, or high interest rates. When credit constraints are present, it can be difficult for firms to invest in new projects or hire additional workers, which can lead to lower levels of economic growth and higher levels of unemployment. The authors of this research article explore how credit constraints affect the labor market and income distribution in the presence of credit market imperfections and labor market frictions. They argue that credit constraints can exacerbate income inequality by limiting the ability of low-income households to invest in education or start their own businesses. Additionally, credit constraints can lead to higher levels of unemployment as firms are unable to access the credit they need to expand their operations and hire additional workers. To test their hypothesis, the authors develop a theoretical model that incorporates credit market imperfections and labor market frictions. They then use this model to simulate the effects of credit constraints on unemployment and income inequality. Their results suggest that credit constraints can have a significant impact on both unemployment and income inequality particularly during economic downturns. So, what are the policy implications of this research? The authors argue that policymakers should focus on reducing credit market imperfections and labor market frictions in order to promote economic growth and reduce income inequality. This could involve measures such as increasing access to credit for low-income households, providing tax incentives for firms that invest in new projects, and implementing policies that promote education and training for workers. Overall, this research article provides valuable insights into the complex relationship between credit supply, unemployment, and income inequality. By understanding the impact of credit constraints on the labor market and income distribution, policymakers can develop more effective policies to promote economic growth and reduce inequality. Thank you for listening to our podcast and we hope you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the effects of credit supply on unemployment and income inequality. We hope you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. If you would like to learn more about this topic, 
we encourage you to read the full research article published by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. As always, we welcome your feedback and suggestions for future podcast topics. Please feel free to reach out to us on social media or via email with any comments or questions you may have. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to bringing you more engaging and informative content in the future. Hello and welcome to our podcast on payment systems and privacy. Today, we will be discussing the challenges and opportunities that come with the increasing demand for payment privacy and the pressure to move towards electronic payments. As we all know, electronic payments have become increasingly popular in recent years. From online shopping to mobile payments, electronic payments have made our lives more convenient and efficient. However, this shift towards electronic payments has also raised concerns about privacy and security. One of the main concerns is that electronic payments leave a digital trail that can be tracked and monitored. This means that our financial transactions can be easily accessed by governments, corporations, and hackers. This has led to a growing demand for payment privacy, as individuals seek to protect their financial information from prying eyes. However, the demand for payment privacy is not without its challenges. For example, cash has traditionally been the most private form of payment, as it leaves no digital trail. However, as electronic payments become more popular, the use of cash is declining. This means that we need new ways of providing payment privacy. One solution is to develop new payment systems that prioritize privacy. For example, some companies are developing blockchain-based payment systems that use encryption to protect users' financial information. These systems are designed to be decentralized, meaning that there is no central authority that can access users' financial information. Another solution is to establish standards for payment privacy. Central banks and other regulatory institutions can play a role in setting these standards, ensuring that payment systems are designed with privacy in mind. This can help to build trust in electronic payment systems and encourage more people to use them. However, there are also challenges to establishing standards for payment privacy. For example, different countries have different laws and regulations regarding privacy. This means that it can be difficult to establish global standards that are applicable to all payment systems. In conclusion, a demand for payment privacy is a complex issue that requires careful consideration. While electronic payments offer many benefits, they also raise concerns about privacy and security. As we move towards a more digital economy, it is important to develop new payment systems that prioritize privacy and establish standards that protect users' financial information. By doing so, we can ensure that electronic payments are safe, secure, and accessible to everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast on payment systems and privacy. We hope you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. If you have any questions or comments about this topic, please feel free to reach out to us. We 
would love to hear your thoughts on this important issue. In the meantime, we encourage you to stay informed about the latest developments in payment systems and privacy. As technology continues to evolve, it is important to stay up to date on the latest trends and best practices. By doing so, we can ensure that our financial information remains safe and secure in the digital age. Thank you again for listening to our podcast.